Welcome everybody, and today you have me, Marcus Padley, stepping in for Henry Jennings, and today we are on the couch to interview Peter Harold, the CEO of Poseidon Nickel. We did a podcast with Peter in August 2020, almost two years ago. I think the share price of Poseidon Nickel at the time was around six cents, and in that time it has gone up to 16 cents, and as we speak at the moment, in the middle of a July 2022 commodities price collapse on recession fears as inflation spikes and the central banks get aggressive on interest rates, the share price has just dropped from where it was comfortably sitting around $0.09 cents in April. And here we are, May, June, July, and the share price has just popped under $0.04. Cents. And today we're going to investigate whether this is something Mr. Harold can do anything about or whether Poseidon Nickel are just caught in the commodities sell-off. Now, I would warn you, Poseidon Nickel is one of the very few stocks I hold personally. Peter is also, I must declare, godfather to one of my daughters, a long-time family friend. And we're here to investigate whether this is the end of the world as we know it, or in fact, a deep value buying opportunity. So, Peter, welcome to the Marcus Today couch and the Marcus Today podcast. Let me start this by saying what some people may not know is that Peter listed a $3 million company back in 2001 called Sally Malay, and it turned into a billion dollar ASX 200 company. Now, there's a little story behind that. When you listed Sally Malay, what day did you list on? Okay, so we listed the, well, what happened was we actually were due to list on the day the day after the twin towers came down, so September 11 of 20, of 2001, and uh, we we'd done the. We'd actually done the allotment. All the money was in. It was a three million dollar float, twenty cent share. And so the, the 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 advisors, Carmichael's in Perth, said, "Oh, you, you better not come on today because it's just carnage out there." So we actually spoke to the ASX in the morning at like six o'clock in the morning. I remember this. And um, they said, yes, okay, we'll look into this and we can actually get you a suspension. So we actually didn't have to list on that day. So we got a two-day suspension for a company that had never actually been trading, which is like the first time in the history of the Australian Stock Exchange that a company actually was due to list and actually went into a trading halt. So we did that for two days and then we would have been happy to be suspended for six months, but the, the Stock Exchange said, no, you've got to come on. So I went down to ring the bell at 10 o'clock in the morning, as you know, we do some biscuits there and the first, you know, normally you come on at a premium and then they match you up. We matched up at 14 cents. So it wasn't right. very, very exciting. Got down to 11 cents. And then obviously, as you recall, it went to, to on to $6 a share at one stage. So, uh, And the story I tell, Pete, is that I think you rang me up on, was it the first day or the second day and said, Marcus, can you can you find anyone to buy these shares? Because I think myself and my dad are the only yes. two buyers in the market. And yeah, I said, dad. I said, Pete, it's nickel, WA, no one's interested. <laughs> so it would have been a, it would have been a 60 bagger if you'd bought it. Yeah. <laughs> there are there are sliding doors moments you go back yes. to. I mean, I could I could have just retired on one stock, yes. basically. Yes. And the, the game was to, to buy the stock in those days, the compliance wasn't quite as hot as it is now. And uh, the idea was to, to do what all stockbrokers had learned to do, which was to buy, find a stock with half an idea, buy millions of it, and then spe- spend the rest of your career marketing it. And, <laughs> and this was the perfect candidate. It was. And it compl- I completely missed it. And I remember at the top of the resources boom, you coming into the boardroom at Bell's to present 
And the the room was full of fund managers. The share price was six dollars, I think. And yes. you you were, in the words of, in your own words, fizzing. Yes. <laughs> And that was the top. I should have known. Yeah, I, I think your your suit was uh, probably a Cartier suit or something. It was like, sorry, Pete in a Cartier suit. Have you met his dad? <laughs> <He's> <laughs> not, this is not normal. And uh, should have known that was the top. Anyway, uh, so Sally Malay turned into... Yes, to Panoramic, which was named after the street that I grew up in in Northbourne. And then um, we ended up, you know, obviously with a market cap of 1.2 billion, ASX 200. Uh, that was in the mid-2008. And then we ran both those operations and then obviously through a, a much tougher nickel price environment, sort of post uh, the GFC. And, and we had a couple of good years when the Indonesians banned the export of nickel, but that was short-lived. Um, and then uh, so I ran that company for 18 years and then it was definitely time to move on. Uh, passed the baton over to, to Victor, who's doing a great job of the restart. And I think Panoramic will turn out to be a very profitable, will be a very profitable business again. Um, I still own all my shares, six and a half million. So I'm looking forward to seeing the share price much stronger than it is today. And then I was um, lucky enough to be offered the position to come and run Poseidon. So I've been doing that for about two and a half years now and enjoying it thoroughly. And Panoramic, of course, has been through the same price cycle as Poseidon. They were 38 cents at the recent peak in April, uh, and they're down to 17 cents. So they have halved themselves. Uh, And so it's a a nickel industry thing that's going on at the moment. It's a resources industry across the board, risk off. I mean, I've not seen an aggressive sellout like this since the GFC. I think Panoramic went from $6 to a dollar in the space of about three months. This has been more aggressive and more, more, more. you've seen it. It's just like it's fallen off a cliff. Uh, within your history as well, uh, Pete, you did spend a time working with Joseph Gutnick, of course. I did. You? I did with um, Centaur. Yeah, that was on the cause project. Uh, no, a very successful um, project. Unfortunately, just overgeared. It was the, day, the years of or the time of junk bonds and we had... I forget $200 million worth of junk bonds at sort of, you know, 10 or 12% interest rates. That was, that was in a $2 nickel price environment, very, very difficult to repay that debt. But it was quite, a, as a project, it was actually the, the most successful of the three in terms of the commissioning. But, yeah, it was a bit small. And, and so, you know, it ended up being sold and uh, went through a number of different owners. Good. Well, let's, let's warm up a little bit, Pete, with your favourite sport. Look, I love watching the footy. Even though I was a, I, I had terrible eye hand. <laughs> I, um, I do enjoy watching Collingwood play. Even though I live in Western Australia, my the history for that is my dad had a shoe factory in Collingwood. Great grandfather set it up in 1928. We used to park the car there and walk over to Victoria Park. Have very fond memories and love going to the footy with dad, and, and still like going to the footy today with my kids. Even though I don't get to see Collingwood play very often. It's right. So job. so Pete, well done. We've just lost 15 sixteenths of our audience. Oh, how did you do that? Well, <laughs> one of the golden rules of newsletters is there's no religion, no politics, and no AFL no teams. <laughs> Otherwise, you lose everyone else. Anyway, okay. there we go. Okay. You've blown it already. Um, uh, now, I've got a couple of other little warm-up questions uh, because we thought of listing at some point. We have no intention of listing now. I've done a bit of research into it. Uh, but biggest advantage of being listed? Well, access to capital. You know, there's always um, uh, an ability to raise money, no matter how tough, good or bad the markets are. You know, I've, I've discovered through my career that, you know, there's always 
um, there's always an ability to raise funding, um, which is one of the reasons why so many resource companies and projects of exploration or whatever are listed for that access to the capital markets. Um, and, and what's and the what's the debt situation at Poseidon at the moment? Zero donut. I mean, you don't really want to have any debt if you're if you're a not operating business in in resources and cash. At the end of June, I think we had about $12 million. And what's your cash burned? Obviously, we've been doing the feasibility study and we were drilling a lot previous to that. So, you know, we were probably spending a million dollars a month just on drilling. Well, that drilling slowed up. So, yeah, the cash burn has obviously dropped away now, which is good. You're really only spending money on studies. And we do obviously have a, a few people. We've got about 10 people in the office here. And then there's a couple of people out at site care and maintenance and so on. So, you know, generally speaking, we'd be spending the best part of $1 to $2 million a month. And capital raisings, when was your last one and, and when is likely to be your next one? Yeah, that's that's they're both good questions. Well, I know the answer to the first one. So we did the last raising, which was $28 million back. We did, I think it was $20 million placement and an $8 million uh, SPP. And we were something like three or four times oversubscribed in the placement. It's just amazing how that was October of last year. It's amazing how the wheels turned. And the SPP was 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 upsized as well because we had so much demand. I forget what the price was, 12 cents or something like that. I can't quite remember. But we, it was a very successful raising and that helped us fund us through exploration and, and all the feasibility study work that we're doing now. The situation's obviously changed a lot. Clearly, at the moment, we're working towards a feasibility study. Once we get that finished, there's a couple of options and we'll talk about that in a minute. But in terms of to restart an operation like Black Swan would be a combination of debt and equity. You wouldn't just do it all with debt or all with equity. What the mix is and how we fund it, you know, with with that debt or equity is is yet to be determined. You can use debt from banks. You can use debt from people like offtake partners, people that the traders that provide pre-financing for some of these things. So there's a number of different opportunities in which to raise the required debt and equity for the project. And who are your big shareholders and are they supportive? Um, I'm aiming that obviously at Tannering. We, we obviously had, you know, this, this Andrew Forrest at one stage was the chairman of Poseidon back in the day, put a lot of time into it. It was his first foray again into the markets after Anaconda, before uh, Fortescue got going really. You know, he put a lot of money into the, pro, to the business and was uh, when I joined, he had about 20% of the company. Uh, we also had another shareholder called Black Mountain, which is a, a group out of the U.S., I mean, unfortunately, both of those organisations have been selling down. And reason being, I mean, if you if you talk to um, the Forest Group, it was for a a, a rebalance of their um, portfolio. So we we actually speak not to Andrew, but to the people that run Tatarang or Wailu for him, which is one of his funds, and or one of his his sort of groups within inside his own um, private company. And they said to us, look, you know, we're a couple of times there, we're going to sell down. We've got use for the money elsewhere. And in fact, in both occasions, we saw them pop up, first of all, with the Narod transaction, which was an, an asset, a nickel asset in Canada. And another time they were buying a big position in, in Western areas ahead of the takeover. So, you know, during that takeover. So I think they've been more active in terms of their allocation of funds. And I guess they felt, you know, they could get a, a better return uh, more quickly uh, in some other investments than, than wait for us with the feasibility stuff. Well, actually, if you look at what they do hold, they own 55%, I think, of AAC, which is an Australian agricultural company. Yes. Uh, they've got 7% of Ridley Corporation, another agricultural company, 5% of Mincor, 3.6% of Poseidon, it says here. 
yeah. and a few other things as well. They were also famously in the last week or so, there was a collapse in the BWX share price. Turns out they hold about 36 million shares of that. So they really have moved beyond yeah. uh, resources. They, they were probably 100% resources and now they're about 60% consumer cyclicals and 33% resources. So they really yeah. have uh, made a a move. But uh, that's us making excuses for why they've sold uh, Poseidon Nickel, of course, uh, which hasn't been helpful at all, has it? And but as I said, you know, capital is mobile. And, uh, you know, they're, I mean, obviously, those people that run that money for Andrew are looking to make a return for him on an annual basis. So if they see something like Poseidon, which has got, you know, a sort of a time frame in front of them versus uh, you know, sort of nearer term opportunities are always going to divert some capital that way. And that's what they did. So and they were upfront with us, they told us that's what they were doing. And so, you know, you can't you can't stop people from buying shares or selling them. Moving on, let's do the nickel price. Where to yeah, sure. from here? Well, it's been incredible. I mean, the nickel price rallied very, very strongly. It got up to $30,000. Or it got to $100,000 a tonne. There was this famous squeeze caused by uh, the, 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 the company Chan Chan, which is the biggest private, uh, well, it's a large stainless steel producer in China, and they also produce a lot of nickel themselves. And they, they were on the wrong side of a trade. They basically go and short the nickel price, thinking it was going to collapse. And of course, you know, the market got wind of it and there was a squeeze. So they were, you know, at a point, I think they were their hedge book was something like $7 billion out of the money. And famously, the LME actually stopped the trading of nickel and there was a sort of an orderly correction in the market, not without a lot of, lot of angst, though, on both sides. Um, so nickel price was very strong. Since then, there's been a wash-off. So it's probably off... 40% from its highs, but it's still at you know, sort of 20,000 bucks US dollars a, a tonne. It's still an incredibly good price relative to where I've seen it. I mean, I've seen nickel below $4,000 a tonne back in the day. So it's, it's still a very good price. For our long-term forecasting, we're using consensus, which is currently around about the spot price. We're using the current, roughly the current price. So we, we didn't sort of see longer-term prices as being as high as they were, but we don't see them going back to those historic lows. I mean, the demand for nickel going forward is incredible. I mean, we currently as a world consume about two and a half million tonnes a year of primary nickel. Um, most of that goes into making stainless steel, about 70%. Going forward over the next 30 years, that's going to grow to nearly 10 million tonnes. I'm not quite sure where all the nickel's going, to, nickel's going to come from. I think a fair bit's going to come out of Western Australia. And there's going to need to be new projects built and old mines restarted, like Black Swan and Lake Johnson. So I think the outlook for nickel is very good. Clearly, at the moment, we're in a sort of a risk-off environment. People are worried about the world slowing down, China, the rest of the world, and all these things. And so all the commodities are being hit across the board, irrespective of which commodity it is. And you know, that will persist for a while. Things will normalise again, hopefully sooner rather than later. And people will come back into the sector again. Right now, they're just sitting on the sidelines and creating some wonderful opportunities if you've got some cash to deploy. And things probably aren't helped or haven't been helped recently by the unpredictability of what Elon Musk says next. Because yeah. the day that he talked about, I think he was having a crack at people working at home and anyone doesn't want to turn up for work can go and pretend to work for someone else, which I thought was quite a clever line. But the next day he's talking about cutting the staff by 10%, yeah. which gave everybody the concept that maybe that's, uh, you know, what, what are you doing cutting staff in an electric vehicle yeah. market, which is supposed to be perpetually growing? Electric vehicles, they are they're still coming, aren't they? 
Oh, yeah. Look, we had a meeting yesterday with BASF. They were in their, their team of people were here yesterday. Uh, there's an, 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 a federal initiative about a, a new research for critical metals, and they, there was a big team of them here. And we were just talking about where the nickel is going to come from. And everyone's of the same view that we are moving to electric vehicles. There's no question about that. And it's all going to happen. And where's all the nickel going to come from that's required in these batteries? I mean, we know some of it's going to come out of Indonesia. There's going to be some from Canada. We know that there's going to be quite a bit from Australia too. And we know that to get these projects built, there's no argument about this. You, you need a higher incentive price because the capital costs for these projects have gone up. The average grades are lower. The ore bodies are deeper. The, the cost to build things has, has significantly inflated over the years. And so a $2 nickel price or a $4 nickel price or whatever that is, you know, $10,000, $10, $15,000 doesn't cut the mustard. So we think $20,000 longer term is, a, is probably about that's the incentive price. If it's below that, people won't build these projects. They won't get financed and then the nickel won't be there. And there was a lot of nodding of heads by the BASF people who are building huge capacity for making batteries and so on. So I think the industry knows they need the nickel, that they've earmarked projects and going to be money available, whether it's from federal government, from the equity markets, from the debt markets to develop these projects. And you're not going to do that if you think the nickel price is going back to $10,000. So I think, and notwithstanding the current machinations of the market, which is driven by because something completely different, that's a that's a concern about interest rates, as you said, and, and the risk of a, a recession and so on or slowing down. I mean, all of these things can happen, but fundamentally the world needs more nickel and it needs lots more nickel you know, relatively quickly. So we have to build new mines. We need higher prices to to commit to those. So I'm I'm pretty confident that we're going to see that. I was doing a bit of work on Rio. I was asked the question by one of our members, when the bottom comes in resources, what do I buy, BHP or Rio? And I just started idly flicking through the websites of BHP and Rio. And Rio goes back to, I think it was 1870s when they bought the Rio Tinto copper mines that used to be used by the Greeks and the Romans and with new technology turned them into the biggest copper mines in the world and became the biggest copper producer in the world. As 1870, you imagine how many cycles these companies have been through. And although the market is very short term, the mere fact we take notice of a Tesla comment and that that might affect a resources share price denies the fact that uh, particularly BHP and Rio and other resources and Australia are globally important in terms of commodity Mm. supply. And yep. uh, nickel is certainly in that complex as well as an important and globally needed commodity, in which case, yes, we will have our moments of worrying about recession. And uh, yes, the nickel price will have a bad moment. And so will pause, so will panoramic. And I've got uh, charts of the correlation between panoramic pause, uh, the nickel price, and there's nothing Peter Harold or Poseidon Nickel could have done about their share price in the last couple of months. Uh, Correct. And uh, nor nor could Panoramic and nor could the nickel traders. So uh, we're in the middle of a moment in a cycle. I do believe that we are going to see a monster buying opportunity Mm. in the commodities Mm. space and not just in BHP and Rio, but in all the other commodity stocks. It'll be a stock market moment as well. And when I saw the share prices falling again today, I'm thinking, well, actually, uh, in our strategy portfolio, we're in cash. 
bring it on. It's the wrong thing to say, but uh, the lower they go, the more money we'll make more quickly on the way back. So uh, we are building up to a moment, which brings us to Poseidon Nickel. With the share price having fallen this far, although I have to say it's down about 56% and in the same period, Panoramic's been down 52 So no one really doing anything wrong here. It's the market. But Poseidon, where to from here? Uh, you've had a couple of announcements recently. Uh, yeah. You want to just run us through those? Sure. So we, we've updated the resource of Black Swan. So we're, we're sort of sitting on about 180,000 tonnes of nickel, which is a hell of a lot of nickel in resource. And then we've got obviously the, the feasibility study that's coming in behind that. So we've got a base case restart of 1.1 million tonnes. And let's not forget, we've got a, a plant sitting there that can do 2.2 million tonnes. It was built by the Russians, Norilsk, back in the mid-2000s when the nickel price was obviously sort of at these levels. The replacement cost of a mill of that size and all the infrastructure is well over $200 million, well over, possibly pushing up to 300 in today's market. And also the, the timetable to get approvals and get these things built is probably blown out by years now. I mean, we've got a project which we had a, a study done six months ago, I think a bit longer, a scoping study to say to refurbish that mill to do a 1.1 million tonnes. It cost us about $22 million and take about six months. That's an, it's an incredibly low barrier to re-entry, if you like, of, of to restart them. Then, of course, you've got sort of re-establishment of the mine and so on. So it's not just the $22 million. Now, that will have escalated a bit with the increasing cost, but we're in a, a wonderful situation. We've got all this installed capacity. We've got a mine that's with an open pit and underground mine, which are fully developed, which can be restarted again for a relatively low cost. You know, we're in a very unique position, leveraged, obviously, to the nickel price. And what we have to do is finish that feasibility study, which is due out in September, keep our options open because there are a number of options. We looked at mining some high-grade material and maybe selling that into existing operations that, that didn't prove to be, that was a sub-optimal you know, option for us versus treating it ourselves. And we're also looking very closely at the 2.2 million tonne case because that is a, that's more nickel units from day one into a market that we believe, as we said before, is going to be short nickel significantly. So all of these things need to be finalised. I mean, some, some shareholders say it's taking a long time to do these things. Well, they should understand that in the old days, you put a, an assay, a, a a drill assay in for assaying and you get the result two weeks later. Some people have been waiting three months and we've not been alone. So the some of the delays have, have really been exacerbated by COVID, by the, the just the enormous amount of, of, of the samples that have been going to get tested and all of these things have, have created um, some extremely uh, big delays which we've had to be wearing. So that, that's been frustrating, but we're still on track for the... To, to release the, the findings of the 1.1 million tonne case in September. And I think everyone will be focusing on what do we do from there? Well, one of the other options we've got, traditionally you could produce concentrate and sell that to a smelter and you would sell that either to BHP or you'd ship it over to uh, overseas to Jingxuan or even further afield. The other option is you could maybe put this material, our concentrate through a, a pressure oxidation and produce a mixed hydroxide precipitate. And that's what our friends at Pure Battery Technologies are looking at doing in, in Kalgoorlie. So they're a private group out of Queensland. They're talking about actually going uh, from nickel concentrate through to the precursor uh, for the battery. So going straight into the battery and sort of effectively usurping that whole smelter refinery uh, route, which is a sort of a 60 or 70 year old technology. So we really like the look of that. They've approached 
the government and got a $120 million grant under the MMI that's been awarded to them back in sort of March, April this year. They're working through their feasibility study. That presents a unique opportunity for us. So we're obviously, we have an MOU with them. We're looking at how we can work together with those guys. They're a really go-ahead group of people. They're well-connected into the, the world um, markets. They've got a, 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 pr- a plant in Germany that's actually treating what they call black matter or waste battery waste to produce brand new PCAM. So they're already doing it, albeit they're not converting concentrate yet, but that's a proven technology. So we really like the opportunity there, but we're we're still looking at the conventional. So we're these studies all take time and reaching the crescendo, then you can actually make a decision as to what's the best thing for our shareholders, you know, which is the best route to market for us. Do we go concentrate and sell it to a smelter? What are the payabilities? What are the recoveries? All those things. And there's a lot of work that's had to have been done around metallurgy on that, which we're doing and, and progressing with well. There's also all the work around pressure oxidation, which we're, which we're doing as well in conjunction with our engineering uh, consultants, GR Engineering, who are doing a good job for us. So look, these things are all coming together and, and I'm really confident that we've got a project which is going to be developed at, at the right point in time in the cycle, as you mentioned before, Marcus. And what frustrates us and the board and, and obviously all of our shareholders is that we've now got a market cap of you know, $125 million, which looks incredibly undervalued relative to you know where we've been in the past and what the outlook for nickel is but we also know that we're in a a risk-off environment and so people are are just not in the space at the moment creates a wonderful buying opportunity for people if they are confident that the market's going to recover which which always has in the past yeah pete for our investors, and there are a lot of Marcus Today members who hold pause. For our investors, a lot of it is always about timeline, what to expect and when. So yeah. if you were to say events over the next year, we've got a September feasibility study. Can you name some events that are scheduled or penciled in? For the next 12 months or so? Well, I, I think basically the, the key one is the feasibility study because off the back of that comes in so many decision points. There's obviously a point where you've got to make a financial investment decision and, and you can only do that once you've got the, the study completed because you've obviously had conversations with banks, with, them, with equity markets and you're, you're understanding how you're going to finance it because obviously a, a board can't make a decision to finance something if they can't finance it. So, of course, well, there's a lot of background work that's got to be done you know, with the potential in uh, financiers as well. And obviously, customers become important then. Let's start with a feasibility study. Let's get that out. There's obviously work that's going on around the 2.2 million tonne case as well, which is the bigger mill. Nickel price environment, there's all of these things. So, look, I think we can put a firm date for the 1.1 million tonnes of, of feasibility study of September. And then after that, we've got to be a little bit flexible because we're then sort of working within the confines of, of things that are outside of our control, which is the equity markets, the debt markets, the nickel price. We, we, we monitor that stuff very closely. But realistically, you can't really put a timetable in past that at the moment because so many things are up in the air now. We've got 400,000 tonnes of nickel in the ground across three sites. We've got two plants we're operating in the not-too-distant past that can combine process nearly 4 million tonnes of nickel. You, you sort of say, well, what's the replacement cost of that? And it's well in excess of half a billion dollars. I just look at it and go, crikey, this is a such a rare opportunity. Exploration companies, at what I would call us, us as an advanced development company, always get really aggressively hit when the markets 
do what they're doing now because people see that, that they're going to need to raise equity in the future, develop their business either, whether it's more exploration or whether it's to turn a mine on. And, and so we're we're suffering probably more than, say, an operating business would in, in this environment. The reality is, Pete, that at some point, the market will get over its recession fears. At some point, the aggression of central bank rate rises is going to peak and the market will go risk on again. And without Peter Harrell doing anything, the share price will recover very rapidly. And the best anyone can do at this stage is to recognize the futility of trying to do anything about the share price until the market wants to know again. So I'm seeing it as a grand opportunity and there will be deep value, as you say. I mean, it's not not for me to say, but uh, Mm. I can see that with 400,000 tonnes of nickel, three sites, two plants and a feasibility study due, you you could get uh, quite excited given a recovery in metal prices and a recovery in equity market sentiment. And we are in a hole at the moment. And I think the equity market is, or the, the equity market game is about spotting sentiment extremes and taking advantage of them. And I rather welcome the idea that we are heading towards an extreme at the moment. We are still heading into it, not out of it. Uh, I look forward to the day we start heading out of it. (laughs) Um, So do I. Now, fill the mill. Can you just explain that and whether that has been uh, delayed? We had a sort of December date for fill the mill. Is that still feasible? In this market, possibly the 1.1 million tonne case might be a bit small. And the the 2.2 million ton case might be the way to go, but let's get the feasibility study finished first, and let's let's see what the numbers tell us, and uh, let's understand what the offtake market looks like, what the payabilities are for the different product specifications that we're talking about. All of that still is a work in progress. So, my, my sense is that that at some point in time, in the not too distant future, Black Swan will be operating at 2.2 million ton per annum. I, I don't know. I just don't know which. What, what the, the actual time frame is, that's the problem because there's just so much still uncertainty out there. Once the market normalises, then people will be more comfortable and I'm talking about financiers because it's hard at the moment when you've had the nickel price drop 40% uh, in the last few months to, to work out, well, what price do I use for my, uh, for my debt? You know, repayment schedule if you're a banker. So you kind of, it's pretty difficult. So I think everyone's just looking for some things to normalize. So let's let's wait for some normalization and then get this get the studies out into the market. People can see what the assets are, are, can generate in terms of cash. They can run their own nickel price scenarios as the brokers will do. And that comes up with a pretty quick valuation. And then that's that's helpful in terms of you know us com, you know, com, committing to which is the best way to go. Right, Peter. Let's finish with my favourite couple of questions. Uh, This is something we used to do at Bell Securities when we had a CEO in for a meeting. We would always ask him, and so I'll ask you, if you weren't allowed to buy your own stock, what company in your sector do you admire and would buy equity in if you had to buy a stock in your sector? Oh, right now, Panoramic. I just think that that, having... Been there for 18 years, been through some good times and some bad times. Uh, looking at that ore body and and what that could produce now with the combined nickel, copper, cobalt, metal in, the, in that every tonne of concentrate, it just looks to be 
ridiculously undervalued relative to some of the peers. I look at what you know Western Areas was taken over for you know a billion dollars by IGO just recently. I would have thought that Panoramic would have had a similar valuation. So I can see that being three or four times the current share price. And I haven't sold any of my shares, but but I I just think that looks ridiculously cheap for an, an operating asset in the in our space. I forgot you had six million shares, Pete. <laughs> Sorry, you'd, you'd right. make a you'd make a good broker, uh, yes. <laughs> buy so, millions and then spend yeah, the rest yes. of your career marketing. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so let's go out, outside of nickel. Uh, outside w, of nickel. WA is the centre yeah. of all uh, yes. uh, resources marketing. Uh, yeah. Can you separate the um, marketing from uh, yes. the quality and yeah. uh, tell us what WA uh, company is the buzz? Some of these gold companies look like they've been sold pretty aggressively. You know, there are some, there is, and I'm not going to specifically talk about, you know, individual gold companies, but a lot of the, a lot of the gold stocks look to be, and I'm talking about producing gold companies now, where, where they have been sold off. You know, we saw Regis bought 30% of Tropicana. I think now their market cap's almost the same as what they paid for Tropicana less than 12 months ago. So you're getting all their other business effectively for free kind of looks very cheap, doesn't it? And there's a number of different cases of, of operating gold companies in that space where they, they just look to be a lot cheaper than they were. And, and to me, they would be undervalued. In terms of sort of small cap resource companies in, in base metals, 29 metals, which I think owns Golden Grove now. I mean, that looks like it's come back a long way as well. And that's a, a wonderful all body or group of all bodies. Now there's, there's I just like um, a lot of these things that are generating cash and don't have to go and, and build um, a, a brand new plant and, and mine from scratch so that they're actually operating at the moment. And, and that, they're probably two that I can think of off the top of my head. 29 metals down yep. 65% yep. since May. There you go. Yep. There was yeah. actually a broker downgrading it today, I believe. And, and I think downgrading on the back of you know higher operating costs. Um, because everyone's experienced the higher diesel cost and the higher cost of labour, but you know the the nickel the copper price is is still three dollars fifty a pound or whatever it is. It's still a great price. And finally, Pete, if our members want to know more about POS, what's the best way to keep in touch? Have you got an email distribution list yes. or somewhere they can sign on on the website yes. or something? We we do. If they go on to, I think it's just info at. Poseidon Nickel. If you go to the website, you'll find that. Just flick us an email. I'm always happy to talk to shareholders, no matter how big or small their holdings are. There's quite a lot of misinformation out there. Best information is what the company says, and that's through our ASX releases, our presentations, forums like this. Forums like this are fantastic. And have you got any events coming up? Pete? Got two coming up. So I've got we've got the Morgan's conference next week. So we'll be updating the market on some of the recent developments, and then diggers and dealers, which is obviously always something that we try and get to. Don't always get a speaking spot, but this year I've been lucky enough to get that. And I think that's off the back, obviously, of the feasibility study being close to being finished. Fabulous. Pete, uh, very interesting. I look forward to the day that we can go back to this podcast and say, we did a podcast right at the bottom. Let's hope the bottom's not too far away. As I say, it's out of your hands, my hands. At some point, we're going to go risk on. There's a lot of money to be made. And I'm sure POS will be at the forefront of that stampede. Pete, thanks very much. Good on you, Marcus. That's great. (laughs) 